Why was it Sir Robert Menzies who laid the library's foundation stone 50 years ago on March 31, 1966? Senior curator at the National Library of Australia, Robin Holmes, has scoured the library's collections to unravel a mystery. To the left of the main entrance steps of the National Library, you'll discover an unassuming, somewhat modest foundation stone laid by Sir Robert Menzies on the 31st of March 1966, 50 years ago, when the library building was still a five-storey steel shell. Modest compared with the official plaque that marked the grand opening of the building by Prime Minister John Gorton on the 15th of August 1968. If celebrations that day belonged principally to the National Librarian, Harold White, the Foundation Stone Ceremony represented the pinnacle for Robert Menzies. Notably, the words Prime Minister do not appear on the Foundation Stone, for Sir Robert Menzies, aged 71, was no longer Prime Minister. He'd just resigned his office, handing over to Harold Holt on Australia Day, January 26, 1966 a fact which required an unexpected rewording on the stone. As he unveiled the weighty stone, he quipped, I was very delighted when the Prime Minister pointed out that this foundation stone would not be left lonely in a field to be surrounded by weeds in due course. I'm very glad indeed to find that it's pretty solidly placed in this wall because I think I'm right in recalling that the last foundation stone I laid in Canberra was out in a field and was stolen that night. (laughs) So why was it that Menzies laid the library's foundation stone, overturning the protocol appropriate for Harold Holt's office? Both the new Prime Minister and Menzies and their wives appeared on stage with the Minister for the Interior, Doug Antony, and the Chair of the Library Council, Sir Archibald Grenfell Price. But it was Menzies who retained the starring role. It was to be a celebratory and fitting finale for Menzies, for it was Menzies' vision and leadership that provides the real backstory to the approval, timing, design and building of a monumental, beautiful National Library on its remarkable site on the lake. A dream library takes shape, as the Canberra Times reported on that day. Menzies never claimed the vision for the National Library as his own, neither the library's independent governance nor the building. For that, he acknowledged Harold White and Sir Archibald Grenfell Price as tenacious leaders amongst many cumulative library, parliamentary and national capital planning forces. He also cited in his speech on the day in 1960 that the legislation establishing the library and its associated Australian Advisory Council on Bibliographical Services was, to quote, a statesman-like act of national cooperation. Yet Menzies' conviction and authority to carry the day with Cabinet, to shape and override the decisions of the National Capital Development Commission and to inspire the vision of why a great national library mattered All these are represented in the laying of the stone. The National Library is a testament to the value Menzies placed upon the national capital as a symbol of nation building and the library as a symbol for the transformational power of knowledge, thinking and the processes of the human mind. In his remarkable speech, 
that he wrote himself and typically delivered only from notes, Menzies asserted with considerable force that the real value of the library lay not in the monumental building, despite its symbolic beauty, grandeur and classical dimensions. Rather, its true quality and international stature lay in the collections contained within the building. Books. Books. Far more important than buildings, though I'm delighted with what this building is going to be. Because, sir, books are the great interpreters. They interpret the past to the present. But this uh, library, of course, like all great national libraries, has another function. It's to interpret the present to the present. It's so that people now writing, now publishing, can communicate with people who are interested in the kind of thing that they're writing about. This is the great means of education by communication, to interpret the present to the present. And that's not merely a national exercise, because if this library does what I confidently believe it will, then it will be a source of light for scholars, for thinkers, in all other countries of the world. It will have a great international significance. And again, they'll interpret the present to the future. The library was to be the corollary of governmental efforts to forge research and scholarship in the nation. But perhaps in a jibe to those who relied on mere statistics about the size of the collection, he asserted, Numbers are not everything. We are not to think, if I may say so, that we have the finest library in Australia or in the Southern Hemisphere because it has so many million books or records. Its quality will determine its place. We must never overlook that. We must not succumb to the merely statistical judgment on these matters. Of course you can't have a great library without having hundreds and hundreds of thousands of books, but it's the use that is made of them, the value that is attached to them, the quality that they exude, which will in the long run determine the character and status of the library concerned. The concept of the building as a national monument equally preoccupied Menzies, who, as this untold story will reveal, was pivotal to the decision-making. Even more important was the site of the library as a symbolic place. Imagine what Menzies' dream looked like in 1966 as he laid the library's foundation stone, remarkably the first of the big national monuments on the newly filled lake to be completed by the National Capital Development Commission, or the NCDC, as it became known. As he laid the stone, Menzies reflected. I would like to live long enough. I don't suppose I shall, but I'd like to live long enough to be brought along in a wheelchair or ushered onto a boat on the lake and to see this building in all its white beauties standing here, reflected in the lake, to see a parliament house of noble dimensions and to see uh, a high court in the place that's been described. Though my interest in the high court, I regret to say, is at present purely academic. What was this symbolic concept of place? Standing on the lake was to be Parliament House at the centre, a symbol of freedom and democracy. It was to be flanked on either side by two monumental buildings of lesser scale, 
and representing the independence of the judiciary, the High Court, and the independence of the mind, the National Library. Behind those two buildings would sit Treasury, developed at the same time as the Library, and the Administrative Building, now the Sir John Gorton Building, designed to serve the arms of government. Harold White articulated the excitement and the perspective of the Library to, quote, This relationship of the legislature, the judiciary, and of a national library has impressed many of us as a symbolic one, of special significance in a country which has long been devoted to Parliament and the law, but only recently convinced of the need for research and inquiry to support our national growth. This tripartite symbolic plan was the accepted view in the NCDC's total civic design of the parliamentary triangle from at least 1960. This was despite the competing recommendations that had been made for the site of Capitol Hill for a permanent parliament. Capitol Hill was seen by some as the dominant landscape for a capitol, much like Washington, and once considered, but dismissed, by Walter Burley Griffin. The decision on where to site a great national library was intrinsically linked to where the new parliament house was to be located. A small, often unobserved design detail in the architectural briefs for the library's building in 1961 that I found in Harold White's papers affirms this view. A tunnel was originally intended to link the library to Parliament House so that collections could be readily delivered from the National Library. Menzies' personal papers testify to his own extensive use of the library's collections And in his Foundation Stone speech, he passionately affirmed that a life without books was unimaginable. Clearly, he himself understood the perspective of users, scholars and researchers. Here was a Prime Minister deeply engaged with the functions and meaning of the library. The story of the National Library cannot be told without understanding this nexus between an independent library and its symbolic and symbiotic relationship, both as a building and a collection, to Parliament. Menzies had been responsible for establishing two inquiries that directly and fundamentally impacted the decision on where and when to build a new National Library. The first, a Senate inquiry on the development of Canberra in 1955, resulted in the establishment of the National Capital Development Commission in late 1957. The second was the Commonwealth Inquiry into the National Library. Having been established as part of the Parliamentary Library at Federation in 1901 and modelled on the US Library of Congress, the National Library was overflowing and scattered in 15 buildings around the city, radiating from its very inadequate King's Avenue building. It was this inquiry, led by Professor Sir George Payton, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne, which recommended the formal separation of the National and the Parliamentary Libraries. On the 10th of November 1960, Menzies himself introduced the National Library Bill into the House of Representatives, identifying its separation of functions as, quote, a national institution independent of parliamentary connections. Yet in 1960, there was still no commitment to a new building. The NCDC's priority was to build, or at least plan, the new Parliament House. However, though agreeing with the NCDC's plans for the now-preferred Lakeside site, 
Menzies' political judgment was that the general populace would not support such expenditure for Parliament. Thus, no new library. The first stage of the national capital development was the creation of the lake and bridges across the Malonglo floodplain, creating a new level of cohesion for the evolving city. The lake was integral to the planning vision and rapidly gave purpose and meaning to other developments. But it was the library that was the first national monument to be built on the lakeside. How did the library building come to be a priority in this complex web of national capital development? At least some of the answers lie with Menzies himself. The inaugural commissioner for the NCDC was Sir John Overall, previously chief architect, whom Menzies appointed in February 1958. In a memorable library oral history interview with Mel Pratt in 1973, Overall provides fascinating insight into the sorrowful state of Canberra's housing, schools, community infrastructure and transport, and the lack of commercial enterprise in the 1950s. Equally, he recalls the divisions in Cabinet and the divided government bureaucracy managing Canberra and its public service workforce that led to Menzies' decisive leadership to design, develop and construct Canberra as the national capital of Australia. Though the story of the ensuing heady construction program is well known, Menzies' personal motivation emanated from a more intimate perspective. Overall recalls that in 1955... That at that stage, there was a personal element that came into it. His daughter Heather was um, to be married. She was marrying a a young um, officer in the Department of External Affairs, as it was then known, and Sir Robert... um, had occasion to look around to look for a home for his daughter. And he travelled fairly widely by foot and otherwise, uh, looking for Canberra at that time, which was a city of perhaps 27,000, 28,000 people. And um, I understand that what he saw appalled him. In fact, he told me so. Menzies had also personally approached the most influential British planner, Sir William Holford, in London in 1957, to provide advice to the Commonwealth, especially on the development of the Parliamentary Triangle. While the Senate Inquiry Report had argued a preference for the Capitol Hill side for Parliament, it was Holford who recommended the development of the lake, the symbolic, functional and visual centrality of the lakeside, would form the prime site for the new Parliament and its related buildings. The NCDC affirmed these principles in their report on Sir William Holford's observations on the future of development of Canberra on the 30th of June 1958. Holford was silent on the matter of the library site. The talk of the day had become rather more pragmatic. One prevailing view was that the National Library should, quote, take over provisional or old Parliament House when the Parliament transfers to its permanent home. The Speaker of the House of Representatives and the President of the Senate had first recommended this in 1956 in a private submission to Menzies called The Case for a Permanent Parliament House, a submission I discovered in Harold White's papers. Even Menzies had succumbed, despite the continuing advocacy, perseverance and protestations of Harold White and his cohort of supporters for a new grand building. From June to August 1958, Alistair McMullen, President of the Senate and Chair of the Parliamentary Library Committee, John McClay, Speaker of the House of Representatives, 
and members of the Library Committee vehemently supported Harold White in an exchange of letters with Menzies. They urged the Prime Minister to act as a matter of urgency, both on the separation of the National Library's governance, collections, staff and records from the Parliamentary Library, to bring the 1952 plans for a new National Library building up to date, and to agree on a suitable site. Harold White later recounted in a 1967 speech just how long a suitable library building had been in the offing. This dated back to the ceremony presided over by Prime Minister Lyons on the 24th of November 1934, when Governor-General Sir Isaac Isaacs and Poet Laureate Dr John Macefield laid foundation stones for the first National Library building in Kings Avenue. Christine Fernan recounted this epic story in the National Library News on the 40th anniversary of this building. In Harold White's words, the library building staggered out of the wilderness. By 1959, Cabinet had agreed that the commencement of a National Library building could be included in the NCDC's plans, but only in the latter part of a five-year period. By 1960, Cabinet still took the view, quote, that it would not be appropriate for the government to give an indication of adding a new and substantial library building to the Canberra program. So what changed Menzies' mind between then and August 1961, when Menzies himself brought a submission to Cabinet at the request of the Council of the National Library? Almost certainly, Menzies had private meetings about the matter. Sir John Overall reported in a note on the National Library on the 11th of July 1960 that Library Council Chairman Sir Archibald Grenfell Price had a long conversation with the Prime Minister about the building. Quote, he reported a sympathetic hearing. It was agreed that preliminary planning should proceed to the extent of defining a programme and establishing the site. Cabinet finally gave in on September 12, 1961 in response to Menzies' submission. They agreed to appoint an architect to design and prepare working drawings, although they made no commitment beyond approval of the initial design phase. Menzies clearly intervened personally and abruptly in the decision to bring forward the National Library building in the NCDC's plans and priorities, as well as to escalate the size, scope and magnificence of the building on the prestige site it stands on today. While official records document the decisions, the behind-the-scenes story of why and how Menzies influenced the planning is never quite revealed, leaving some elements to speculation and imagination. Manuscript collections, cabinet papers, submissions and committee minutes, unpublished reports, architectural plans, building specifications, all these can be scoured to piece together the official sequence of events but it's oral histories that fill in some of the gaps and add personal nuance to the story. Peter Biscup's interview in 1988 with Dan Sprod, at the time the library's liaison officer for the building project and later chief librarian at the University of Tasmania, provides the most potent source for Menzies' intervention. Despite the distance of time and a slightly faltering memory, Sprod recalls the development of the architectural briefs for the building, in which he says, Harold was up to his ears, advocating for a large building that would accommodate long-term collection expansion. Sprod reflects, however, that the NCDC was trying to cut us down to the bare bones, and instead of a grand building, we were going to have a very utilitarian building. And you might be right about the site. At that stage, we might have been talking about a different site. Now, we had 
two meetings on consecutive days, and on one meeting, the NCDC threw overall was going through this depreciating business of knocking us down and clipping our wings. The next day we had another meeting and overall started talking and I sat there and it took me a while to realise that something had happened overnight and without even saying look we've looked at this again and we think you're right, he was starting to accept all the library's arguments for a grand monumental bill, monumental's the word, for a monumental building on a prestige site. And I, I didn't tumble to it for a while. And of course what had happened overnight was that, that overall had been called in by Menzies and told that the National Library was to be a grand building, a flanking building from the Parliament House and, uh, to balance the High Court building, which was then not even planned, but you know, anticipated but not planned. And definitely that was the reason well, the National Library's got that grand building today. It was a personal decision by the Prime Minister of the day. Even Harold White was caught unawares. While overseas in late 1961, he was called upon to make a sudden and difficult decision about a much grander size estimate for the building and how much land would be needed. He was very glad to have advice from Dr Keyes Metcalf, an international expert on library planning, to ratify White's estimates based on his rapid consultations with staff at the British Library. Menzies had most certainly intervened. By 1962, the firm of Bunning and Madden, under Chief Architect Walter Bunning, had been appointed. The site was finalised, and on March 12, 1963, Cabinet approved the working plans. As the architectural concepts unfolded, the noble, monumental and classical style of the building was much in accordance with Menzies' taste. His approval over the years of treasured collection acquisitions also betrayed his love for and interest in all things classical. For example, in approving acquisition of the academic bibliophile Sir David Nichols Smith's collection in 1962, Menzies added a note in his hand, As this is 18th century, I cannot say no. Menzies also had a hand in approving the artworks, including the commission for tapestries and sculptures for the building art. The history of the design, the architectural plans and the building stages are well documented in the personal papers and records of the architects and the NCDC, though the sketches through the development phase are sadly lost. The architects report on their overseas travel to examine the finest monumental buildings in America informed their thinking. The library's functional requirements, the monitoring of collection growth throughout the period, the engagement of the expert consultant from Harvard, Dr Metcalf, the consultations and the commissioning, they're all part of the library's history that can be found and explored through the library's manuscripts, pictures and official records, most notably in Harold White's and Walter Bunning's personal papers. From the announcement of the architects and the public release of the model and the drawings, the Canberra public became enthusiastically engaged in the new lakeside building, all glowingly reported in the Canberra Times. The commencement of excavations on the 24th of April 1964 was accompanied by an image of the whole. Foundation workers started on the new National Library. By 25th of July 1964, the Canberra Times reported, workmen yesterday began pouring concrete in the construction of the new National Library. The building work must have started almost instantly after Doug Antony announced the contract with the builders on the 17th of April 1964. By the laying of the foundation stone in 1966, 
The steel shell was in place, with five storeys above ground and two filling the space below. Invitations were printed and sent. Protocols and complicated lists of guests from all over Australia flowed between Parliament and the Library. Arguments took place about seating plans, with Harold White indignantly relegated from the dais to the front row. But on the day, hundreds of excited individuals gathered for a momentous celebration to the plaudits of all. The official speeches by Doug Antony, Prime Minister Harold Holt and Sir Grenfell Price recount the context, the statistics, the epic story, the key players and all was recorded in sound by the Library for Posterity. Yet the day belonged to Menzies. After the event, the inner few retreated for an informal buffet dinner at the White's home in honour of Sir Robert and Dame Patty. Fifty years ago was the halfway point towards completing the National Library building. But for Menzies, it was the culmination of his own vision. A vision dreamed not only by librarians and scholars, but by a Prime Minister prepared to shape, guide and support his national monument. His testament to the importance and value of knowledge, worthy of a national capital and on behalf of his nation.